Hello and welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Rachel Conroy. This episode is airing in the middle of arguably one of the most controversial sporting competitions in history. However, to show the other side of how sport can be a force for good, I'm happy to have had a conversation with Anthony York, CEO of Boxing Futures, and Paul Williams, Director of Programme Implementation at Movember, to discuss how sport can play a vital role in building mental resilience. These two men have harnessed their lifetime passions for sport to enable them to make a difference to disenfranchise young people and the communities around them. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good is a fundraising platform helping charities raise sustainable, unrestricted income from business sales. They are on a mission to help charities unlock some of the £2.3 trillion in revenue that SMEs make every year. They do this by making the contract side, the commercial participation agreement, of sales fundraising easy. The platform saves fundraisers and charities valuable time, thousands of pounds in resource and legal fees, and streamlines supporter experiences, and ultimately helps fundraisers raise more unrestricted income. So, here are Ant and Paul. Hi everyone, I'm very happy to be joined by Ant York, uh, CEO at Boxing Futures and Paul Williams, Director of Programme Implementation at Movember. How are you both today? Yeah, very well, thank you. Um, great, to, great to be here and uh, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, likewise, feeling good, um, weather's great. So yeah, I'm very delighted to be speaking to you both. Yeah, brilliant. For the listener, we'll, we don't know what the weather might be when this episode airs, but we're getting one of those last sunny autumnal days today. So it is beautiful. You are you are right. And, and yeah, very excited for this um, interesting topic that we'll be talking more about today. So um, if we'll start with you, Anne, what's your background and how did this lead you both to founding and becoming the CEO of Boxing Futures? Oh, well, um well, the viewers won't, won't see my age, so um, but it does go back a, f- a fair bit. Um, I first of all started working with young children at an after-school care club, and was a, a coordinator um, for that project, which was great. You know, experience as a as a, as a young adult male and you know, working with um, disadvantaged young kids and um, helping them, you know, with their parents when they're at school and college, sort of making sure that their young people had places to go and activities to do. Then I progressed into residential children's social work. Um, where I became a residential social work manager, um, ran a series of children of therapeutic children's homes. Um, then I moved into the criminal justice system with young people. I um, mean, in terms of um, providing mentoring services for those that were being released from prison. Um, then I got headhunted by a, a national um, homelessness organisation, which, which was predominantly focused on young people, and we set up the, really the first through the gate resettlement model. Um, out of a uh, Feltham Young Offenders Institution where workers would follow um, vulnerable young people um, with housing issues through the gate into the community and prop them up for approximately about two years, which is kind of unheard of to a case work anybody these, these days for, and reintegrate them back into the community, you know, with the ultimate goal of stopping them from reoffending, but also achieving their further um, goal, goals in life. Um, so I progressed really um, with that charity for, for a number of years. Um, working in, within the criminal justice system and setting up resettlement teams in various prisons up and down the country from Deobalt in Newcastle down to Rochester in Kent. So um, I sort of bled, cut my teeth really working, you know, at the hard end of, 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 of things with young people. Um, and um, 
in the end, it sort of um, focused me on to really delivering something that I felt passionate about, which was using sport um, as therapy for young people. And I could see the way it would help, you know, first of all, specifically young adult offenders, but then, of course, the the broader mental health remit that I was seeing in not only our sort of target group of young people, but just the wider community, which sort of led me to to want to do something, you know, impactful for us, you know. Oh, no, that's fantastic. Um, and, and I don't think the last bit you said leads you to something impactful. I think what you're doing the whole of your career was impactful. So I think you'll do yourself a disservice there. And it's so clear that, you know, the importance of of giving as many young people as many kind of resources and chances is something that's really driven you um, through your whole career. So, yeah, it's just fascinating to hear. Yeah, I think it's you know, um, working with prisons and working with young adult offenders, you can you kind of see young people, you know, you know, when they've been through all the systems or social services, been through care, you see the sort of the end result really. And a lot of these young people, they're not, you know, they're not bad people, they're not criminals, they're just lacking opportunities and care and love really a lot of the time. And that often would continue, you know, throughout the criminal justice system, and then there's very little upon the release. And I just wanted to try to intervene where I could and to break that cycle and give those young people hope really um, and hope hopefully leads to opportunities and opportunities hopefully leads on to a, to, to a better lifestyle you know yeah definitely and, and like you said it's it's not just hope for them but hope that they have in other people that they can see that other people are there for them too which is which is so important to so many of those young people like you said who are not inherently bad they've just ended up in these situations and we need to give them as much opportunity to kind of move on from that as we can as well yeah i think that's speaking for themselves you know in terms of the, the present demographic and the social economic disadvantages that they've come from in in, in the main is is quite stark really and because those are the sort of issues i want to sort of tackle and and, and to break the cycle for, for them so you know um boxing futures is a brainchild out of that you know i don't take sole responsibility you know um for boxing futures but um but as ceo founder yeah of course i'm, I'm very proud of, of what we do but you know i'm determined there's, you know there's a lot more to be done and uh um like I said, i've been fortunate enough to work with some amazing you know partners over the year i'm, I'm least of all with the november foundation who uh who um who fund and created our um our brothers through boxing program which are which is an astounding program really and you know i'm born out of innovation and you know my members bravery with funding and their funding um um sort of strategy in order to um accumulate the best possible projects is but nothing that i've seen before within our sector so it was a it's been a privilege really to work alongside such good partners and there's been others you know that work with us children in need comet relief big you know lottery funding that sort of thing you know they're all valuable partners but um but i have to say you know november has been standout among a good bunch for sure Listener, um, you know by now that I work for November, and trust me, I didn't pay Ant to say this. He's uh, he's come <laughs> of this with his own volition, but no, thank you, Ant. But also, I think it shows you know that the the program is really believed in that there are multiple fun- funders from different massive organisations in the UK that are willing to partner with you. So I think that's great. Um, and then Paul, um, on to you. How's your career path um, led you to your current position as director of program implementation at November? Yeah, I think like most people, you know, I didn't necessarily have a clear plan coming out of school and, and kind of knew what I want to do. But, you know, and, and talks about passion for something. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about kind of the role sports 
played but that you know sport's been a key part of my life so I think that was something that I was interested in and didn't really know what what that might involve but I think we all have those kind of sliding doors moments in our life where where opportunities come up and and we either take them or we don't but I think I think I remember one that's probably shaped a lot of my career was sat in a, a second year lecture um, doing a sports science degree and a group of other students coming in with with an organization and talking about some potential volunteering opportunities. So they ran kind of residential camps at the university um, and played quite an emotive video with a, if I remember correctly, a Take That song, which I think pulled you in in terms of, right, this sounds like something really kind of powerful and something important. So uh, that really, you know, led to a, a number of, A, some great experiences working with some kind of amazing kind of young young people that were, were doing all they can to kind of improve their lives and, and support other people. But, you know, managed to spend a bit of time in Africa when I graduated delivering HIV, AIDS awareness kind of games and activities through sport. Um, and when I kind of came back to the UK, I managed to then work for that that charity that the Youth Sport Trust that kind of had done some volunteering for and really you know I started on the on the reception desk in their in their London office um, but very quickly saw you know saw the power of sport and, and the opportunities that could come through that so I've, I've kind of then traveled through working at the front line in kind of sports development in London um, and then fortunate to spend kind of five years working delivering national programs in tennis and at the time kind of Andy Murray won one Wimbledon so you know using that the power of that kind of um, elite sport to, to try and make a difference to schools and young people and, and others uh, through tennis and then um, I joined November relatively recently but I joined after six years working for a Premier League football club charity so again um, ended up in a role with them where I was managing you know big teams of work six departments 120 staff of sports coaches teachers health and well-being practitioners but all using the power of football to to try and you know make a difference on on those kind of local communities but yeah kind of really um uh, got to know Mevember a little bit when I was working for them and and some really exciting work that's coming out of that and and again at that tipping point so you know my brief is around mental health and and well-being and um, and I think we're you know society was starting to change and more people are feeling more comfortable and open to talk about those vulnerabilities so I just think we've got a real opportunity to to help transform that and continue that kind of acceleration of that change. Yeah definitely and I, I actually I think between the two of you we could just talk about your lives uh, for a whole episode so if there's anyone listening out there who does other podcasts get these guys on because I think there's a lot more that we won't get to explore on this episode which is absolutely fascinating um but yes um Paul you you kind of started talking about it a bit in in your last answer but to both of you what what role has sport and fitness ultimately played in your lives but for me it, I kind of mentioned it has been a central part of my life so you know as as a young young person that was participating uh you know I remember very fondly Saturday mornings kind of little league football and and playing other sports I think when I was probably about five or six I think my dad gave me a choice between carrying on with beavers or going and just being on the sideline of my brother's football training kind of during the week and you know I, I chose the football training but it just wanted to kick a ball about and and be part of it um, and that's no offense to any kind of beavers or cub scouts kind of listening in but you know it's just something that you know I, I got a lot from as an individual but I think Ant mentioned it you, you know I've got to meet and build friendships with people um, over a, a very long time that has been kind of through that kind of connection of sport um, so yeah as a participant a fan you know all my family support the same football team um, so dad brother uncle 
granddad, great granddad. So we took we took dad on a tour of the stadium a couple of years ago and and realised that great granddad mm. kind of lived near the stadium when the club were formed. So you know, there's a lot of a lot of bonding and social connection that, that's kind of happened in in my life and and obviously professionally and I've done different voluntary roles as well so yeah it's been been a big part of my life and um unfortunate yeah that it still is now right thanks and um yeah the kind of social connectivity of bonding over sport is a big thing i i don't support the same club as a lot of my family but my my brother and me do and he now lives abroad and i think it's probably 80 percent of our conversation is still um about about football so yeah i i agree it's it's a huge kind of coming together a lot of the time sport isn't it um and and what about you what role has it played in your life yeah a huge role and uh, very similar um to, um to you paul and um i see you're both very um discreet and coy about disclosing which teams they they follow so um, I, I should do the same and, and keep mum but um you know i think you know football was always was was my first love i think you know you talk about the beavers i remember being in being in the cub scouts and actually in the my proudest achievements were my three sporting badges that I had the most colourful badges of all on, you know, of all the badges you could earn. And they were front line and centre, you know, I was very proud of even as a little kid of those of those badges. And, you know, I was an energetic young man, so I needed sport as a release. I needed sport, you know, to get me through to get me through each day. I was after every after every school um club and session, I I'll attend as many sports sessions as I could. I was Inch high, private eye as a tiny little boy as well, but I was still joined the basketball team. And you know, anything that was physically active, you know, I, I would give it a shot at. But you know, football was was my first love. Um, you know, um, it was just strange um, considering I run a charity called Boxing Future. So I boxed actually. You know, I suppose between the ages of about seven and twelve, um, I didn't really get to compete um, against other clubs. So it was a lot of um, inter club competitions that I was part of. Um, but um, but. As we'll learn and discover, that it's a very tough sport, a very dedicated sport, and um, the choice between boxing and football. Um, um, physically, I think um, football suited me better at, at, at the time. Um, that's my little get-out clause for saying that it was very, 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 very hard work um, <laughs> on being, being committed to boxing. So um, when I see these guys, so especially these days, um, that are still competing and still training, I'll take my hat off because it's a... Uh, um, it's, a, it's a very, very hard sport and dedicated sport, but no greater way to keep fit, you know. Yeah, brilliant. And I think and you touched on a really important factor there that's, you know, when we're thinking about young men and, and their development through those kind of, you know, late childhood teenagers, as you said, that kind of energy that a lot of them have, and, and girls too, but it, it comes out a lot in that kind of adolescent phase is so important to have a channel and an avenue to to express that as well. I think that's a really important thing to pick up on. It's vital. I mean, you're right, especially during those um, during those ages. But I would say, I would argue, throughout all of our lives, that release that, that of built up tension, just you know, and just for me, it's just the joy of being physical and outdoors, and you know, being out of breath and how good you feel afterwards. It was just you know, is I could I could never see sport not being part of my life, you know, ever to be fair and. Um, you know, um, the London um, the London Marathon wasn't too too long ago, and what great seas there were, seeing people of all shapes, sizes, and ages, race, colours, creeds, really putting themselves on the line. It's 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 incredible, and you know, that's, it uplifts the human spirit when you when you witness things like that. But it, and, and let alone sort of taking part, you know. So it's it's wonderful. 
Yeah, definitely. Oh, thanks for that, Anne. Um, Paul, coming to you specifically, can you tell us a bit about the mental fitness charter um, that at the time of recording is happening during the Rugby League World Cup? But when this goes out, it will the Rugby League World Cup will have been over and hopefully England will have won um, by then, beating the Aussies on the way. Um, so, yeah, can you tell us a bit about the mental fitness charter around that competition? Yeah, so Movember, I think I've got a long history of working kind of in, in rugby league and, and kind of rugby league communities. So, you know, it's, it's a game predominantly played in, in the north of England, although obviously there's kind of pockets in, in different areas of, of the UK as well where, where the game is played. But, you know, it's strategic for us to, to work with the sport. There, you know, some of those communities, there are those kind of stark health inequalities that exist. So take St. Helens, it's kind of in, in kind of Greater Manchester, but, you know, that's got the highest rate of suicides for men in the UK. So, you know, there's a real need in some of those communities. Um, so I guess when when the, the tournament, um, it was decided it was, was coming to England, we already had those relationships. But I think from the outset, and this predates me, but and there's been a huge amount of people that have been involved to kind of make it happen and, and get us to this point, as you say, Rachel, where, where the tournament's actually kind of happening now. But um, yeah, the real, real decision to make mental health, mental fitness, as, as we sometimes talk about it, sit really at the heart of, of the tournament. And the, the mental fitness charter was kind of the embodiment of that. So that, that really set out the commitments we made, the, the Rugby League World Cup kind of tournament organisers organizers made and, and kind of a charity we work closely with at, at Rugby League Cares that, that would happen um, by the final whistle of the tournament. So again, we, there's been lots of conversations about these sporting mega events and legacy over the years, particularly kind of heightened on the back of, of London 2012. But, you know, we set out to do the to do the impact now and, and kind of before or during the tournament rather than kind of waiting and, and having a so-called legacy kind of uh, left afterwards. But um, yeah, the, the charter sets out the commitments we made. So we, we've got an evidence-based programme uh, um Movember called Ahead of the Game. Um, and that's really about teaching young sports people, their parents and their carers about mental health literacy. And then specifically with the young people looking to to build some mental health resilience as well. So so we, we committed to deliver that program in the host towns and cities um, to 8000 young people and their families. As I said, we've also delivered to their sports coaches, but but uniquely. And it's, it's probably the kind of the first global sporting tournament that's done this. But everyone involved in the tournament has been through a mental kind of fitness workshop so everyone who's worked on the tournament the the power squad the volunteers um that have kind of uh, helped uh, at the tournament time every match official and then every competing player as well see so these pro sports and athletes that have traveled from around the world as they've come into the country and been preparing for the tournament um we've had kind of facilitators delivering mental health uh, fitness um training to them as, as they've arrived in country and ahead of the tournament and lots of, lots of lots of these are young men away from family for an extended period of time so it's been really powerful for them as part of that and then the final bit has just been that the kind of broader campaign so if people have been watching the games or have, have watched them over the past few weeks then they might have seen some november branding as part of that and specifically the, the language we've used or this kind of strap line has been go beyond the banter so really trying to encourage men in particular but everyone to to have those conversations, to reach out and, and get support when when you might need it. So yeah, it's been a really uh, awesome partnership and, and really impactful. And, and there's our commitment as Movember to to continue ahead of the game, um, working across a number of different sports into into the future. Great, thanks, Paul. And I think there's yes some good learnings as well for any organisations who are looking to either 
organize their own kind of big sporting fixtures or uh, in in that space to have some things to consider along the way there as well yeah and we're, we yeah we definitely think we've got a, a bit of a blueprint just in terms of how we've worked with the the tournament um and kind of those local that local delivery partner but you know ahead of the game is a global program so we're, we're delivering in canada we're delivering australia um and, and yeah, are, are keen and want to work with sporting organisations, clubs, tournaments, leagues, etc., to to just try and yeah, grow grow the program and and kind of continue to have have the impact we've been fortunate to have uh, linked to the tournament. Great, um, thanks, Paul. And then, and coming back to you for a question, um, how do you think participation in sport can improve the mental health and well-being of disadvantaged young people? And this is clearly a passion of yours that's come through. So, yeah, really excited to hear what you think about this one. Yeah, I mean, I think sport for children and others is shown to be, you know, related to reducing anxieties, you know, um, improvements in higher self-efficacy. Um, self-confidence, um, the social benefits are such higher. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's such a higher investment in, in 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 these young people, really, in terms of what they achieve. Um, you know, everybody knows in terms of you know the brain releases endorphins when you exercise, which helps with pain and stress relief. Um, you know, you've been encouraged to at least do twenty-five to thirty minutes exercise a day, even those minimal amounts. Have studies have shown to, to have massive improvements in in, in young people's well-being. Um, the benefits are, 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 multi, are so many layers, really, in terms of what sport brings to young people and, and their and, and their well-being. I mean, even just spending time outside of doors is proven to to to, to improve people's well-being. So um, it's extremely important. I mean, it needs to be pushed much higher on a school agenda in terms of in, in terms of their activity a day. I believe they should be doing at least an hour activity of sport in schools. Um, every single day, if possible, um, and 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 the research is is really is really clear. Um, even with elite sports, as as Paul was saying, in terms we know that a disproportionate amount of elite sportsmen suffer with mental health issues. So again, is 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 creating the awareness um, around, around mental health and 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 how well sport really does address some of the issues. For example, even the Faculty for Sport and Exercise and Medicine, along with the um, psychiatry um, specialist groups have all brought out sort of joint statements um, to the government to suggest that they need to increase sport in schools and and, and increase um, sport in, in the community in general. Um, boxing is our conduit; it's what we love, is what we do. But all sports, you know, I think has a vital role um, to play in, in in people's health and well-being, and no more so than with, than with young people. Yeah, great, and and if you don't mind me asking. Could you share with the listener a bit more about what you do day to day at Boxing Futures and the programmes that you run as well? So, so Boxing Futures, we're a charity that uses non-contact boxing as therapy. So we engage into our communities, take boxing out of the gym and primarily into spaces where people um, wouldn't really expect boxing to be. So we go to leisure centres, community halls, work in psychiatric hospitals, work at universities, colleges, and we have bespoke um, programs delivered to address certain societal issues, whether it's um, um, young adult offenders leaving prison, with these young people that have autism and other issues. Um, we, we deal with a lot of physical disability programs as well. Um, but one of our main strands of work is to address loneliness and isolation, and as part of the, the wider suicide prevention campaign. So um, back in 2017. 2017, there was a call to arms by, 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 by the Movember Foundation for 
I can't really say that word properly, so excuse your listeners, but innovative projects in order to address social, um, social isolation and, and loneliness. So we threw our hat into the ring, not expecting a great deal to um, to happen, really, because we were just starting out ourselves as an organisation and, and quite small. Um, but we really found you know, the whole process really invigorating. And November's attitude towards us, you know, even as a small organisation, was was very much the same as it was to a larger organisation. And the passion from November and the commitment of their staff were very much the same. So we found it really incredibly easy to work with Movember, um, um, being a, quite a new organisation. So um, so we developed a programme called Brothers Through Boxing, which is um, a programme aimed at 16 to 25-year-old young men to really look deeper and at the causes of loneliness and isolation, but also to get them to socially interact and connect with each other and build those social connections. I know through a lot of Movember's research, you know, they've realised that, you know, a lot of reasons why men commit suicide across the globe is because of that lack of social connectedness and loneliness and that and that particular type of isolation. So we wanted to look at this particular subject matter with a younger age group, because traditionally a lot of the interventions are aimed at, at men of, in, in the middle age, in the middle age years. So I think my, I think that piqued my members' interest that we were looking at a younger couple and actually it was, I think it may have been quite a surprise to a lot of people that actually this, this particular age group did suffer with loneliness and isolation quite significantly. So um, it was a real groundbreaking sort of inter- intervention that was developed. So through the, um, the, the funding cycle, November actually gave us money up front to co-design and research our project with the young people, which was great because, you know, the young people were in the room designing and developing the programme, which is addressing their very own needs. Um, which was an amazing process for them, which was an empowering process for them, and and as such, they took ownership of the of the pro of the project really quite quickly. So, um, like all good ideas, it's, it's very it's really quite simple. Um, we have a two hour session every week. The first hour is, is a workshop where we talk around some of the emotive issues that young people are facing and how we can give them coping mechanisms to cope and how they can support each other. And the second hour would be boxing training, where again, they further cement those sort of close working sort of relationships. Um, so this is a six month program um, and, and, in, and in, interspersed within that program are different types of social events. We have guest speakers coming in to speak with them around maybe um, gender specific um, health issues. Um, and, and things like that, um, and um, and we, and it ends with us with a with a three day sort of social residential, um, which puts us all outside of our comfort zones. But again, you know, being outside your comfort zone as a group um, and working together, it really brings that group really closely tight knit together. And uh, um, yeah, it's a very very special program um, which delivers on on, my, on all of its outcomes, and um, and it has, it has an amazing effect on me as, as, an, as a person myself because you know, just realising how important those positive social connections are for young men and, and, and men in general, you know, was a real eye-opener for me. And to see the benefits of some of our young people who who are, you know, really struggling, you know, to find a place or to find something that worked for them. And lots of our young people have been through counselling and had other types of interventions which just didn't work. But for whatever reason, the, our programme really, really grabbed these young people and are really flourished and, and benefited and um and it's extraordinary actually the, the wide-ranging sort of groups of young people that we get onto our programs who are lonely and isolated you know um i think i was explaining to you paul on, on recently that we get young men who have for example recently released from prison who can't go back to their own home areas um, um, um for legal reasons so they find themselves isolated lonely in areas that they don't know quite frightened you know they've often 
exhausted all of their resources in terms of family, friends, grandmothers, uncles, aunties, and they find themselves really quite alone. Um, another group that we work with are um, asylum seekers and refugees who, through obvious reasons, find themselves lonely, isolated in towns and cities where they're not familiar um, with languages, they're not familiar. And then, of course, there's our own, you know, there's a, a wealth, there's an indigenous population of young people who, who also are sat at home, not very active, um, often intimidated by their, their own communities, even at school, they struggle. And the find of withdrawing, withdrawing from the communities all the time, and uh, and it's very sad to, to, to see that happen. So our program is aimed at those very people, you know, to get them engaged, get them active, building social connections, and having a, a real stakeholder in their communities. Yeah, it's um, it's such a fascinating program, and and I think one of the most impressive things, as you said there is the fact that it was built with the beneficiaries from the start, which I think is so important when it's such a personal thing. We know mental health is is, is personal. There's, there's not a kind of one treatment for everyone because every single person has a different life experience, don't they? So for the beneficiaries to be in the room from that early stage, I think is testament to how then successful the program's gone on to be as well. It's a really important feature because, like I said, not only did I take ownership, but young people have been talked at all the time. They're talked at by everybody in government. Everybody likes to tell young people what to do and what they shouldn't do. But it's nice for a change for us to be asking them, what works for you? What do you want? You know, and those are important questions and not really asked often enough, um, in my opinion. So they have total ownership of, of, of that and any changes to the to the programme, they're fully involved in and, and committees are set up to, inf- to inform those decisions. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, um, um, it's like I said, it's been a pleasure for me to to, to work on this on this programme and as the CEO of Books and Futures to, you know, um, I get to to champion it all over the place and talk about it and I get all the praise and all the thanks, but you know, I have to give props to my staff, the programme facilitators, you know, they're there, you know, um, they're the real stars. Um, in any of this work that we do, you know, I'll hopefully Paul will agree, but it's people for me that change people. It's the impact of people, coaches, those special people, those committed people that, that make the difference. And uh, so, yeah, a big shout out to all of those um, coaches and facilitators that are doing such great work everywhere. Yeah, and, and I've said that a lot and across my career of, you know, particularly working for a, a club or with, where, where there's that kind of brand and that, you know, fans etc you know that that badge will only get you so far it'll get you through the door it'll open the door but it's it's absolutely the people that are then building those relationships able to yeah get trust and rapport with young people or, or kind of adults in you know vulnerable adults so yeah absolutely i think a lot of the work you know and you should be incredibly proud and of, of a yourself but the, but the team but it is about really good people wanting to do good work and and making sure you know as a, as a sector we you know making sure we've got they've got the skills and knowledge in it and experience to do that but yeah absolutely it comes down to, to really good people wanting to, to do some good work and, and make a bit of a difference oh thanks guys um I've, I've got one more question and we're, we're getting quite positive and I hope this question isn't too negative to to kind of turn the mood but you know we, we can't kind of ignore the fact that we're going into and we're currently in times of you know incredible economic and social uncertainty how do you hope that sport can continue to help people during these times i think sorry paul i think for me i think you know for us to be able to continue to put on programs and offer activity and participation and make it as cheap if not as free as possible for um, for everybody it's the best way that we can really support i think our, our community so 
we plan to be opening up our doors to, opera, to offer more free sessions if we can. So we're actively recruiting new volunteers at the moment. Um, all of our programs, especially the Brothers Through Boxing program, is free for participants and it's free for stakeholders. So those people that refer into our programs, there's no cost associated um, with it at all or to the young person. So that's how I see us being able to contribute to really, to, especially in these really challenging times, just try to offer more free sport, more free activity. Um, and get and get and keep people active. Yeah, and, and, I, and, I, and I think that's a, a key point because I think I think the most important time, and this is you know we go back up to kind of government level, but the, the most important thing is that community sport clubs or programs, you know, like the amp runs and and some of the ones that November Fund are able to keep their doors open. You know, you think about you know a community sport club is still going to pay for lighting, heating, and and we know you know that's hugely challenging at the moment. So I think I think that first and foremost is the most important thing that those organizations can keep doing the good work they're doing they've got the you know the, the, the trust and relationships in in those localities and in those places that are, are hugely powerful so i think i think you know we need to make sure uh, government level and whether that's national or local that they've got the resources and the support to, to be able to do that and i guess then then you want individuals and communities to continue to prioritize sport you know, as Anne said, that you know there are barriers in place, particularly for some communities that that might find it more difficult to access. But then we need to make sure we're doing a great job signposting to free or low cost activities. Take you know, take park run or junior park run on Saturday and Sunday mornings, and that that's something that um, I, I know they're doing a huge amount of work to make sure that that's in communities that perhaps need it um, as as much as some others. So I think that's really important. But but I think you know the pandemic shown us that community sports clubs pro sport kind of foundations and charities step up so they you know they were there I was kind of working for one of them at the time but they were there delivering food medicines kind of what what people needed so I'm sure that you know that that backbone and driven a lot by volunteers um will kind of be there for for their communities as we kind of go through the next you know who knows whether that's six months a year two years what whatever you know we've we've got to the next thing to be thrown at us as a as a communities in a society but but I'm sure sport and those working in sport will will absolutely you know do their utmost to to provide whatever support they can. Yeah, I'm, I agree, Paul. I've had no doubt that the sector will rise to the challenge. I mean, as you write, let's say the pandemic, you know, taught us a lot of things, and if not, how to you know into readiness for such you know um, emergencies and things like. That. And it is an emergency, you know, the cost of living, energy increase, um, fuel increases, and things like that. It is an emergency for a lot of families. So yeah, we're stealing ourselves and readying ourselves to um, um, to respond, but, you know, um, but not just react. You know, I think um, throughout the pandemic, one of the things I was really clear upon is that not you know, not to be a victim of the pandemic, but to, you know, proactively help our communities through our through this, through the pandemic, which is what we we try to do and we'll, and we'll continue to do in the future. Yeah, and and, and you, you talk about co-creating programs, but again, it's you know, and some of it can happen through sport. But how how do you support those communities to co-create solutions to other aspects of their life? You know, what what are the things affecting those communities, and um, and how 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 are they involved in that decision making at that real local level that they you know see tangible change happening in their communities that they want to see? I think that's the the bit sport can also help to you know open doors or or speak to those with a bit of influence and power locally that can can start to address probably some of those root causes of, of stuff that's kind of going on. 
Yeah, definitely. And thanks for those answers, guys. And I think we've kind of come full circle in that kind of concept of hope that Amp mentioned at the start. And you've both picked kind of really, you know, hopeful ideas that that sport and organisations that are in sport can can help with, like we said, these these coming times, however, however long they are. So thank you so much, guys, um, for a wonderful talk this afternoon. Uh, it's just left for me to say bye and thanks again. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Always, always a pleasure to spend some time with you, you and, and you, Rach. Thank you. Thanks, guys. A big thank you to Anthony and Paul for letting us into their worlds and highlighting the positives of sport. We've heard how every faction of sport, from grassroots community organisations to global sporting tournaments, can support the mental health of young people by offering a form of therapy. The social benefits of sport cannot be overlooked and there is a great desire for it to be placed higher on government agendas in educational settings. Social isolation is often associated with the older generations in the UK, but there are a large number of young people who can find themselves socially isolated through a number of reasons. It's important that there are free to access programmes for these individuals to help them build their social connections. This is because positive interpersonal relationships are a huge prevention factor in someone reaching crisis point in their mental health and ultimately taking their own life. Finally, every global sporting tournament rightly talks about the legacy they want to create for the host nation, but Rugby League are the first body to take the step of bringing a mental fitness charter into this work. By integrating the mental fitness training, not only to tournament participants, but also to the communities in which the matches were held, they have identified a real need in these areas to foster programmes to support suicide prevention. So thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to listen to Charity Chat. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode and how you feel sport can help to build mental resilience. Find us on Twitter or LinkedIn to share your thoughts or email us on charitychatpodcast at gmail.com. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good is a fundraising platform helping charities raise sustainable, unrestricted income from business sales. They are on a mission to help charities unlock some of the £2.3 trillion in revenue that SMEs make every year. They do this by making the contract side, the commercial participation agreement, of sales fundraising easy. The platform saves fundraisers and charities valuable time, thousands of pounds in resource and legal fees, and streamlines supporter experience, and ultimately helps fundraisers raise more unrestricted income. I'd like to also thank Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Askamit for our beautiful website, check it out at charitychat.org.uk, Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and playing us out now. I've been your host, Rachel Bellmore. Thank you so much again for listening.